growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. That's what we're doing. When we ask the question, what in the world is going on? In essence, we're saying, (laughs) is somebody steering this thing? Is there some plan? Is there something happening that maybe I, because I'm not seeing it right now. The world we live in today seems to be filled with much uncertainty. There is uncertainty in the world's economy. Wars are going on everywhere. Layoffs and job losses continue. In our personal lives, circumstances can often leave us wondering what in the world is going on. Where is God in all of this? Is, is that what I'm here for? Am I, am I here to do the best I can for as long as I can until I kick the can? Is there no meaning? Is there no purpose? Is there no, no plan? Or... Is it possible that there is some greater scheme, some greater plan at work that perhaps you and I at times can't or fail to see, and yet there's something bigger happening? I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Throughout history, mankind has wondered about the events unfolding and asked, is God there? Does he care? Does he have a plan? Well, today, Pastor Clay is taking us to 1 Kings chapter 22, where we are reminded that no matter what men may do, God is large and in charge. We're glad you've joined us today as we discover that history is really His story. What in the world is going on? You ever ask that question? Right? Only about a million times, right? What in the world is going on? I think about stuff like um, when, when you ask that question. I mean, it's, it's really a, it's a very relevant question for the, for the time in, in which we live. What, what in the world is, is going on? Is our, is our economy on, on the way back? Is the worldwide economy on its way back? Or is it going to crash and, and burn? Is the war in Iraq uh, even winnable? Should we be sending more troops into Afghanistan? Are the Iranians really going to build a nuke? What are the North Koreans up to? What in the world is going on? And even like on a more personal level, right? Am I going to get laid off from my job? Am I even going to be able to get a job? Is my marriage going to survive? Am I ever even going to marry? Is it possible that, I, that I, I'm going to get cancer someday in my life? Am I going to be able to survive this diagnosis? What in the world is going on? It's, you know, asking that question, and I was thinking especially about if a person is not a follower of Jesus Christ. That's a very natural question to ask. Now, I know all of us have asked that question and do ask that question at times. We look around at our, at our situations and our, our circumstances. But, but for a person particularly that is not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you think about it, that's a very natural question to ask. Because if you don't believe that, that there is a God, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, meaning that, that God is in control, and we're going to talk about that today, if you, if you don't believe that and that, that really all of this is just a, a cosmic accident and, and there's really no purpose or no plan to life, if, if, if that's your conviction, and I've got to tell you, life is pretty scary. Our life would be pretty scary because it means that life is just a crapshoot. Life's a, a roll of the dice. Life's a flip of the coin. And that's, that would be a pretty scary way to go through life. 
There's a word that uh, you're going to hear this week in your, in your life groups in, in the Truth Project as we're walking through that, uh, what I believe now is week six, Bill, are we in week six, is that right? Seven, uh, just right in there in that halfway mark, and uh, I hope you guys are enjoying the Truth Project in your life groups um, and, and getting part of it. But one, one, you're going you're gonna to hear a word this week in your life group study that you may or may not be familiar with. And the word is metanarrative. I may be oversimplifying the definition just a little bit, but, but for simplification's sake, let me just say this. That basically, you can think of the word metanarrative as, as like this. It's like, it's the big picture. It's the, the overarching story. In all, of the, in all of the little narratives that are going on, in all that's happening in your life, in this person's life, and, and all this stuff that's happening, and all this is going on in the world, and, and all this stuff, that within all of these little narratives, that there is a meta-narrative, that there's a bigger story. If... I'm asking the question, what in the world is going on? I've got to begin to process the idea about whether all of this is just, just happenstance. Is this just life? Is, is, is that what I'm here for? Am I, am I here to do the best I can for as long as I can until I kick the can? Is there no meaning? Is there no purpose? Is there no, no plan? Or... Is it possible that there is some greater scheme, some greater plan at work that perhaps you and I at times can't or fail to see, and yet there's something bigger happening? I want to invite you, if you brought a copy of God's Word with you today, to open it to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22, we're going to be reading together this morning, verses 1 through 38. The text will be up on the screen as well. But from 1 Kings chapter 22, we're bringing out what I want you to see, and then what we're going to chew on and talk about for a few moments is this idea of meta-narrative. And like I said, you're going to look at it this week in your life groups in the Truth Project. This meta-narrative, this bigger picture, because if you don't understand that there is a bigger scheme, a bigger plan at work in your life, and I just tell you, for me personally, life would be pretty depressing. If, if, I, if I did not think or believe that there is something greater, some greater scheme that God has for my life, life would be pretty depressing. So, I want to give you, before we read the text, I want to just give it to you up front. From 1 Kings chapter 22, what, what I call the, the BP squared. The, the big picture biblical principle. The BP squared. From 1 Kings 22, and it looks like this. You don't ever have to wonder who's in charge. Because in essence, that's what we're doing. When we ask the question, what in the world is going on? In essence, we're saying, man, I, <laughs> is, somebody, is somebody steering this thing? Is there some plan? Is there something happening that maybe I, because I, I I'm not seeing it right now. The BP squared is, you don't ever have to wonder who's in charge. 1 Kings chapter 22, uh, we're going to walk through this text, and uh, may, maybe a little differently than, uh, than the way I do on some Sundays, but we're going to take some time walking through 1 Kings chapter 22, and uh, it's kind of a lengthy uh, text, but I'm just going to talk a little bit as we do, and then after we finish this text, we're going to get down to, to just some reminders that I want to give you for some application for your life. 1 Kings chapter 22, three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. 
In the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember that I told you that there was a time in the history of the nation of Israel where they they split apart. There was basically a civil war. And they split apart, and and ten of the twelve tribes of Israel joined together, and that was called the Northern Kingdom. Do you all remember that? Act like you do, even if you don't. The Northern Kingdom that was called Israel... And then the two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were, made, were referred to as the southern kingdom. So that, that's where we are in history here in 1 Kings chapter 22. The nation is divided. There's the nation of Israel, northern kingdom, and the nation of Judah, southern kingdom. They all used to be Israel, broken apart. Verse uh, 3, now the king of Israel said to his servants, the king of Israel meaning the king of the northern kingdom, which is Ahab is his name. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram, the the Arameans. It's it's really the Syrian empire. So, the the king of the northern kingdom, Ahab. Have you all heard of him before? Bad king. Not a good guy. Remember I told you, Israel, they had a series of good kings. Good kings, they have bad kings. Good kings, bad kings. Ahab, bad king. Ahab says, hey, listen, Ramoth Gilead, this particular portion of, of what used to be all part of the empire, the nation of Israel, uh, it's been taken over by the Arameans. It had been promised to be given back to them, but it had never happened yet. And so they said, here, it's, what does he say? He says, uh, it, it's been this... Whatever this period of time is, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? We, don't, we still haven't taken this back. Verse 4. And he said to Jehoshaphat. Now, who's Jehoshaphat? Thank you. <laughs> That's right. He's the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. I know this sounds like mindless trivia, but it's important. It's history. Jehoshaphat is king of the southern kingdom. And he said to Jehoshaphat... Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? Right? Got it? Ahab, Ramoth-Gilead, it's ours. It's been taken away from us. We still haven't gotten it back from the Arameans. Why is that? Why haven't we taken that back? Hey, Jehoshaphat, southern kingdom, will you come and fight with me against the Arameans to take back for us so we can have this back? Now, what this doesn't tell us, what you don't know, I think it's 1 Kings chapter 18 Jehoshaphat had married his son off. He had entered into this alliance, which was, not, was ill-advised. He had married his son off to the daughter of Ahab. So they're like father-in-laws. So, you know, Jehoshaphat, we've you know, we got to work this out. We've got to have a good relationship. Hey, why don't you come uh, go to war with me? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel... I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Would have been a lot simpler to just say, yeah. (laughs) Well, they didn't talk that way back then, I guess. No, it was just what he's saying. He's saying, you bet. We're we're blood kin. I mean, we're we're all part of one nation originally, and and I'm with you, man. My my horses are your horses. My men are your men. My strength is your strength. We're we're together on this. Verse 5, moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel... Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. <laughs> Absolutely, Ahab. I'm with you. My horse or your horse. Yeah, we're, we're good. Would you find a prophet and find out what God has to say about this battle? <laughs> let's, get a, let's get a prophet of God in here and see what he says. 
Verse 6, then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, let me tell you about these 400 prophets. They are on the payroll of the king, okay? They are the king's prophets, It's kind of like advisors around some political head, you know. What are they going to tell you? They're going to tell you what you want to hear, right? Right? Uh, Should I run for office? Absolutely, man. You should run. (laughs) Should we go up and and take on Ramoth Gilead? Should we we take on the Arameans? All 400. Absolutely, king. You the man. You'll crush them. Now, apparently, Jehoshaphat senses by their answer and and by their actions and attitudes that that maybe they might be a little biased in this decision. In other words, he's not quite sure whether they've really asked of the Lord about this. Verse 7, but Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we we may inquire of him? That probably insulted the other 400, (laughs) but I don't think Jehoshaphat cared because he's like, okay, yeah, got it. But is there a prophet of the Lord that we can ask? He knows that they're on the king's payroll. He knows what this is all about. Watch this, verse 8. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He never says anything good about me. I don't want that guy around here. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. In other words, let the, king, let the king call him. Now, Ahab's kind of in a predicament here. He doesn't really want to call Micaiah because he never has anything good to say about him. But he, he's trying to, you know, kind of do this thing with Jehoshaphat and keep him on the right side and make sure he goes into battle with him and everything else. And Jehoshaphat says, come on, king, bring that guy in too. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. There they are. Get the picture? Here's the two kings. They're dressed in their kingly robes. They're sitting on their thrones. All all these 400 guys are gathered around and saying, the kings are the men. The kings are the men. Going to stop the Arameans. Going to win the battle. No problem. Verse 11, then Zedekiah, the son of Chanaanah, sounds like a song, made horns of iron for himself and said, thus says the Lord, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. So this, this Zedekiah, he makes a set of horns, all right? And he, he puts them on, he, he's kind of acting this out. He says, here's what the Lord says. Can I tell you this? All of us need to always be careful when we say, man, God said this. Or God, or God wants this. Now, he may. But I'm just saying, we, we better make sure that we're careful. We better make sure when we say, thus said the Lord, we better make sure that thus said the Lord. So he says, oh, yeah, thus says the Lord. These, these horns, you're going to gore the Aramans. I mean, just like the, the uh, bull doing it, you're going to gore them, you're going to wipe them out. So, man, they have set the stage. All the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramath-Gilead, prosper, prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Verse 13, Then the messenger who went to summon 
Micaiah spoke to him saying, Behold, now the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. (laughs) Please let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. You see how they're setting this thing up? The guy that goes to get Micaiah tells him in advance. Now listen, I'm just telling you, I know you're you're trying to get a message from the Lord, but I'm just telling you, all 400 of the other guys, they're all positive, Micaiah. We know what your track record is. They're all positive. So please let your report be positive too. Verse 14, boy, very important words. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. Wow, those are powerful words, aren't they? Because they apply to all of our lives. Because all of us, in a sense, are, are prophets in, in the sense that we, that we foretell, we proclaim the message of God. And sometimes that message is not well received by some people. Sometimes parts of that message are hard or, or, or even harsh or, or difficult for people to, to really want to take in. But Micaiah says, what the Lord says, that's what I'll say. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah. Shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, and I'm telling you, this, basically, this, you could assume this kind of tone. And he answered him, go up and succeed. Lord will give it into the hand of the king. In other words, and you pick this up as the story continues, Micaiah is just, he's being smart aleck almost about it at this point, because he's, he's been told, oh, the 400, they're, they're all for it. The king's for it. You better be for it. Okay, go up. Take it. Then the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak nothing to me, nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Well, that's a big fat lie. He'd already said earlier he never wanted to listen to him because he only had bad to say. But remember, Jehoshaphat's there. Got to keep this thing working with Jehoshaphat. So we've got to act all spiritual. Oh, Micaiah, you know, I, I, you're just being sarcastic. I really want to hear what the Lord has to say. Y'all ever had people <laughs> tell you that? Well, what, do you, what do you think about this? What does the Bible say about that? And then when you tell them, they don't like it at all? Verse 17. So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Y'all get the implication of that, of that prophecy? I looked and I, and I saw the, the people of Israel, they, they were like sheep and they had no shepherd, a.k.a. they had no king. In other words, there's nobody, there's no more king on the throne. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, so Ahab turns and he says to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? I told you this was going to be bad. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said to this, while another said that, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. (laughs) Don't you know that went over well? And then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. So Micaiah says, listen, is a lying spirit coming from these prophets? It's not gonna, it's, it, they're lying to you. And God is not with you in this. 
Verse 24, then Zedekiah, the son of Chananah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? Slaps him. Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. You'll see. And then the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this man in prison, feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Watch this, verse 28. Micaiah said, if you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, listen, all you people. If you come back, Ahab, then God hadn't spoken through me. I know i got to hurry. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. Watch this. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. (laughs) Ahab. Now, Jehoshaphat, we're going to do this. We know Ramoth-Gilead, God's going to give it to us. But listen, you go ahead, put on all your kingly robes. You know, you look like a king. Men look like a king. I'm going to disguise myself, and we'll go into battle. And apparently, Jehoshaphat's like, okay. <laughs> now listen, here's what you don't understand. There's, there's always stuff at work, and we're getting to this point that I'm trying to make to you. There's always stuff at work that you and I don't understand. Now see, in Ahab's mind, here's the deal. Remember? Remember what I said? Ahab and Jehoshaphat are father-in-laws. Jehoshaphat's son has married Ahab's daughter, Guess what happens if Jehoshaphat gets killed in battle? Jehoshaphat's son comes to the throne. Who's he married to? Ahab's daughter. In essence, his Jezebel, which was Ahab's wife. Which would then open the door to unite the kingdoms again under Ahab instead of under Jehoshaphat, who is of the line and the lineage of David. Anybody understand the implications of that? If there's no king from the line or lineage of David, then all the prophecies concerning the the Messiah who would come of the line of David, they're all thrown out the window. You see what's always, Satan is always at work, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, you you look sharp, man, in that row. I I just keep that on. I'm just going to change into some jeans and, you know, mingle with with my posse. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Okay, verse 31. Now, the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, saying, so this is the enemy, the king of Aram, do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. In other words, what he says to him, I know we're going into battle, I know you've got to fight, but listen, find the king of Israel. Find Ahab. Find that dude. He's the enemy. So when the captain of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, surely it's the king of Israel. Look at this guy. He's got king stuff on. He's got to be the king. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. (laughs) Can't say much for his courage, but actually Jehoshaphat was a pretty good king. When the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. So they're chasing this guy. There he is. There's the king. Let's go get him. And Jehoshaphat's like, "Ah, I'm not the king. I'm, I'm not Ahab. I just got tricked into wearing this suit. When the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from suing. Watch this, verse 34. Watch this, we're we're almost done. Now a certain man, now a certain man, drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel, Ahab, in a joint of the armor. 
So he said to the driver of this chariot, Turn around, take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans and died at evening. And the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot, and then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. Kind of sounds like what Micaiah said, didn't it? So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves there according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoke. God had prophesied as to how Ahab would die because of his trickery and, and, uh, and rebellion, and what he'd done to Naboth in, in chapter 21 previously. Listen, uh, maybe you've read this story before. Maybe you've never read it before. But what comes out crystal clear to me over and over again is that men and women can make their plans. Men and women can do their thing. Men and women can think that they can leave God out of the equation or they can do things that they want to do or whatever. But never miss the fact that God is in charge, ladies and gentlemen. You never have to wonder who's in charge. Ahab, all of his scheming, all of his planning. Well, I'm going to get Jehoshaphat down here. I'm going to get him into this battle with me. He's going to get killed because I'm going to make him dress up like a king. I'm going to disguise myself. He's going to get killed. We'll, I'll, I'll be able to be king of the entire kingdom. Uh, I'll hide myself. They'll never, they'll never find me in the midst of all of that. And, and this is all going to work out. And a certain man shoots his bow into the air at random. Just is the implication of the text. He just... But when God is guiding the arrow, ladies and gentlemen, it will always find its mark. And it hits a chink right in between the arm, just in the right place, that it penetrates the armor. And Ahab dies. Listen, here's what I'm saying to you. God is in control when we don't even know or realize God is in control. No matter what other people do. And listen, let me tell you something. I understand that there is mystery here. I understand that I don't understand everything about how the sovereignty of God and His plan and His purposes somehow mix and mingle together with the free will of man. I don't exactly understand how all it works, but I know this. I know that it does. I know that the plan of God mixes somehow with the free will of man in some way that neither one of them are violated, neither the free will of man or the ultimate plan of God. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, wrote a book years ago entitled Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, Tozer gives this example, an illustration, if you will, of somehow how the the sovereignty of God and the free will of man work together. Let let me give it to you and maybe it'll help in some way. Tozer says that uh, imagine a a cruise ship, a steam liner, as they might have been called in, in the old days. Imagine a cruise ship with thousands of people on board that ship. Imagine that it sets sail from London to New York. That's its destination. Tozier says when that ship sets sail that all the passengers on board that ship are free to do as they choose to do. If they want to sleep in late, they can sleep in late. The choice is theirs. If they want to overeat, they can overeat. The choice is theirs. If they want to go to the gym, they can go to the gym. The choice is theirs. If they want to hang out by the pool all day, they can hang out by the pool all day. The choice is theirs. It's up to them. What they cannot do is change the destination of the ship. And listen, they can decide they don't want to go to New York. Makes no difference. The ship has sailed. They can claim they don't even believe in the ship. Makes no difference. The ship will dock in New York because it's been predetermined before it ever sets sail. 
Tozier says that in some rough sense that that's kind of a picture of how the sovereign plan of God is at work with the free will of man. It's not a perfect illustration, but it gives some sort of idea of how the fact that God's plans and purposes will be carried out and will be fulfilled, and yet somehow men and women are able to make choices, some good, some bad. They're able to make decisions, some right, some wrong, but they make those decisions within the canopy of the providence and plan and purposes of God. Now, um, real quickly, in just a, a few more moments, what I want to do is try and give you three reminders based on the fact that, that you don't ever have to wonder who's in charge. I want to give you three reminders. And I, I was trying to think this week, all, all week I was trying to think, what is something I could give them that they could carry out of here that, would, uh, that they could hold on to? Because I think these reminders are very, very important for your life. I, I, would, I would write these three reminders down. I would memorize them because, can I promise you this? The circumstances, the trials, the events, the difficulties, all of those things that have and do come into your life will and shall come into your life some more. And you will, once again, say, what in the world is going on? In those moments, those three reminders will be very beneficial to you. And this applies to every single person in here. I don't care if you're in middle school or high school or, or grade school or, or if you're a senior adult or if you're in the workforce, out of the, where, it doesn't matter. You're going to have times in your life when you're going to say, what in the world is going on? What is going to happen? Where am I going? What is this plan? What's going to, has God got anything? What, what's going on? Three reminders. First reminder is this. God's plan is broader than my picture. Anybody know uh, what myopia is? Myopia is a condition of nearsightedness. You'll, you'll hear that in the Truth Project this week as well. Can I tell you this? Probably all of us at different times in our lives have spiritual myopia. We're so nearsighted. We get so focused on our lives, our circumstances, our events, our trials, our difficulties, our whatever. We get so focused on that that we fail to realize that is it possible that God has a picture that's broader than what I can see going on right now. Some of you have heard uh, our story as a family and uh, how we kind of got into ministry. Some of you have not, but uh, I worked for the post office for a number of years. Most of you probably know that. In 1986, uh, we moved to Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, Nashville area. Uh, I was able to transfer with the post office from the office where I was, uh, Okeechobee, Florida, London, Paris, Rome, Okeechobee. Um, I was able to transfer from Okeechobee, Florida to Waverly, Tennessee and, uh, and did that. And now, can I just be honest with you? Now, God has really had, had worked in my life and brought me the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and we were active in church and, and all that kind of stuff. But I'm just telling you the truth. Now, in 1986, I decided to move to Tennessee. I just thought it'd be cool. Cindy's parents lived up there and I'd been up there to visit and it was really nice and so transferred up there. Um, we were there a, a grand total of uh, six months or seven months? Seven months. Uh, we hated it. We hated it. I mean, it was just, I can't, I, it's, it's hard to explain. There were so many things about it, almost from the moment we got there, that was just run out. Now, the, our boys, they were little, and, and I don't know how much they remember of it, but, but it, was, it was just bad. The, the, oh, the, well, the church we went to, the, the preacher didn't even carry a Bible. Nobody knew they needed a Bible, and there was nothing in it. And it was like, yeah, uh, something's not right, and oh, 
was out, I was out delivering mail. I was born and raised in South Florida, okay? I'm out delivering mail, all right? I'm doing this parking loop route, and it's January, and it's like there's snow and, and ice and stuff on the ground, and it's like 27 below zero or something. It wasn't that cold, but it felt like it. And I, and I'm, and I can remember, I'm walking, and I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing here? So, anyway, I'm, I'm going to really fast forward. Seven months later, God opened the door that we got to go back to Okeechobee, back to the post office that I had left. They'd never filled my position. Go back. Blah, blah. So we're, yeah, everything's nice. It's, you know, fruit and nuts and, you know, happy times and birds singing and all that kind of stuff. Because we're back in Florida and back at my old job and, and everything else. So we go back. Fast forward. Enjoyed that time. Great time. Growing in the Word and, and loving the Lord and serving in His church and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, three years later, well, about two and a half years later, Cindy and I, in this conversation at night, bring out that God's, I think God's leading us back to Tennessee. And, and Cindy's laying there silent, you know, and then she says, I feel the same way. But we hadn't told each other that. So, okay, everybody thinks we've lost our mind when we tell them this. Yeah, we're going back to that place. You remember that place we hate it? We couldn't wait to leave. We're going back there. Why are you going back? I don't know. And I'm not saying this happens every day, but I'm telling you this. There are times in your life, if you, if you, if you focus on God, if you'll draw near to God, and if, you, and, and if you'll just say, God, I'm reporting for duty, sir. I'm showing up. What do you want me to do? God directs our path. And, and we just, both of us knew God was calling us back to the place that we hated. We get back there. Listen, here's, let me wrap it up. But, but what happens is it's totally different. New pastor, he actually has a Bible. And we actually, and we start turning and and. Um, almost immediately after we get there, he asked me if I'll kind of part-time come on staff and uh, do youth ministry. Now, I, being in, quote-unquote, ministry, you understand what I'm saying? All of us are in ministry. But being in, you know, vocational ministry was not even on the radar screen of my life. But he opened that door, and okay, I could do youth ministry while I'm uh, doing this post office, postmaster stuff, and all that will be fine. That's good. And everything else, and all's hunky-dory and right with the world. And it was. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. It was amazing. I can tell you, it's amazing when you're in God's will and, and how wonderful things are. The same place we had been three years earlier, now all of a sudden it was like the birds were singing up there. It was like, cool. It was a nice place. And through that process, and then the time that we were there through that, God brought us to this recognition that I'm, that I'm calling you to a new phase of your life. That I, I want you to step out by faith. And I want you to believe me that I, that I want you to, to pastor a church. I want you to preach the word of God to people. And I want you to take people on mission to the ends of the earth. And I, and I want you to, to do all of that. Now listen, here's what I'm saying. 1986, what in the world is going on? Because <laughs> we, I, I don't got a clue. I don't have any idea what's going on. 1989, what in the world is going on? God is calling us back to the place we, is it possible that God's picture is broader than mine? And that God sees things that I don't see and he has a plan that I don't necessarily understand. Yeah, it's possible. Um, all right, let me, let, me just get, let me just move on. Let me give you the second one. That's good. God's plan is bigger than my problems. His picture, his plan is, is, is broader than my picture. His plan is bigger than my problems. I don't like this one. And the truth is, none of us do. And I, can I, I mean, in some sense, you could say all of them are hard to get hold of. This one is hard. Because all of us would like to think that the issues or the problems or the difficulties in my life, that they are at the top of the agenda of God's priority list. Right? 
my financial struggles, my physical problems, my family stuff, my, you know, whatever. That, surely that is at the top of God's list. This is my problems and God loves me. Let me tell you something. There is a false theology out there that teaches this very thing. There's a false theology out there that teaches that, that God loves you and God is a God of love. And so God would never want you to suffer. God would never want you to hurt. God would never want you to have trials or pain or hardships or difficulties. And that, and that God always desires to deliver you from whatever those circumstances are. Always. Now, can I tell you something? That sounds great. But it's just not true. Now listen, stay with me. I'm not saying that God doesn't care about your struggles. I'm not saying God doesn't care about your trials and your hardships and, and, and your problems. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, is it possible, again, that God has something bigger in store for you as a result of or even through those problems or trials or difficulties or hardships that you are currently going through in your life? I, I, just, I just finished this uh, this book, God in the Foxhole. Travis gave me this for Christmas. God in the Foxhole. It's a collection of stories of soldiers on the battlefield who encountered God in, in strange and, and really amazing ways at different times. And it, as you read the stories, one of the things that comes clear is that, that it's when the battle was the fiercest. It's when the uncertainty was the greatest of whether they would even survive or not. It was at that moment that those people sensed sought out God's presence the most, that's when they looked for God. That's when they wanted to know. Right at the end of the book, there's, I can't remember the exact quote, but it says something about uh, that uh, this, this professor somewhere said, there's a direct correlation between the number of atheists in a foxhole and the number of bullets that are flying in the air. The greater the number of bullets, the less atheists you find in the foxhole. See, we say, God... Oh, get me out of this. And maybe God's got something bigger. Maybe it's possible. Well, let's, let's, let me just ask you. You don't even have to raise your hands, but I'll know. Let's be honest. When are you more acutely aware of your need for God in your life? Is it when everything's milk and honey, flowing fine, good, all the bills are paid, everything's fine and good, healthy, and uh, my kids have straight teeth and all that? Is, is that when you're the most acutely aware of God's, uh, your need for God in your life? Or is it when you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from or what's going to happen medically or what the need is in your Which are you more acutely aware of your need for God in your life? If we're all honest, we'd say, you know what, it's... It's during those trials. It's during those problems. And maybe God's using those circumstances to to shape us more into his image. To help us. Here, I'd write this down. Faith and trust are built on the front lines of life. Have you discovered that? Faith and trust are built on the front lines of life. And, and, And maybe instead of saying, God, get me out of this. Maybe we ought to be saying, God, teach me what you want me to know through this. God, make me more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, through this. I hate it. It stinks. It's painful. It hurts. But maybe you've got something bigger in store than my problems. All right, last last reminder is this. God's plan is better than my plan. It's usually at this point, that, uh, that we begin to, uh, I say at this point, I'm talking about in those moments of crisis, those problems, those trials. It's usually at 
that point that, uh, that either we abandon God's plan because we run out of patience, because God's not doing what I want him to do, right? God, I, I want to be married now. God, I want to, I want to make six figures now. God, I, I want to... Whatever. And, and either we run out of patience because God's not moving as quickly as we want him to for our plan, or we run out of faith because we get fearful in the midst of the situation. And we look at it and we say, well, this couldn't possibly be God's plan. This couldn't possibly be what God wants. This couldn't possibly be what God would, would have for me because I'm his child and he, and he loves me. It couldn't be. So, so we run out of faith. And when that moment comes, what we do, and I, I've been as guilty of it as you, you have been in your life, what we do is, what do we do? We alter the plan. We, we try and manipulate the circumstance. We try and change the situation to make it better because this must be better, must be better. That must be what God wants. And can I tell you this? Often we're successful. Oftentimes we can manipulate a situation. We can, we can work out a circumstance that can alleviate some of that, that, that temporal pressure or pain or suffering or hardship that we're going through. Not always, but sometimes we can manipulate in such a way that we can relieve some of that. But listen, we miss we miss what God actually had planned for us because we divert off the plan. God's plan is better than my plan. It's better than your plan too, by the way. I, I was thinking about this guy in, uh, when, when I was in seminary. I did an interim pastorate in Green Sea, South Carolina, a real small little town uh, in, in South Carolina. And there was a, there was a man who lived next door to the church, uh, Shelton Shelley, was his name, right? I couldn't think of that this morning, and it finally came to me. Shelton Shelley lived right next door to the church. Shelton Shelley, <laughs> you get in trouble trying to say that three times fast. Shelton Shelley didn't give a flying flip about church or God or Jesus or anything else. As long as the church kept their yard mowed, he's okay. Now, his family all went to the church right beside his house. His wife went, all his kids went. Everybody went, but not Shelton. Shelly, he's a nice guy. He just didn't have time for God. Shelton got sick. Shelton got real sick. Went in the hospital, Columbia, South Carolina. It didn't look good. They didn't know he was going to live or, or die. And his family, they're all like, what, you know, they're praying, right? And, and rightfully so, but they're praying, oh, God, make him well. God, heal, heal Grandpa. God, you know, do this. And, and so the plan was... Grandpa shouldn't be in here sick on the, on the verge of death. That, that, that could not possibly be what God wants. After, I forget how long he was in the hospital. Long, 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 long time. He finally got going. We got to visit him. I got to visit him several times in the hospital. He got to go home. And we went over to see him at his house. This guy who'd never had time for God or whatever. And I'll tell you something. God has a way of humbling people. Bringing them to the place of recognizing their need for him. We walked in there, and Shelton Shelley was just absolutely broken over his life. He was a good guy, hard worker. I didn't care about God. But I didn't hardly say, I mean, this guy, I walk in there, and he's, God's just all over him. And, and the family's plan is, he's, get well, that's got to be the best thing. Is it possible that God's plan was that he get saved? He'd give his life to Jesus Christ. And that's through the trial and the adversity that he would actually do that. God's plan is better than your plan. Let me, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about a plan. I, I, I dream about cross-culture a lot and vision and, and, and what God would desire to do. And, and uh, 
you know, like any, like any church or any, anything, you know, you need financial resources to operate and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and if you've been at Cross Culture a while, you may remember long, quite a while back, I mentioned there's a, there's a building down on Ebenezer Church Road, like this uh, 90-something thousand square foot building that unbelievable ministry could be done for, done through, and it's right here in this area. And there's some other buildings around that would just be, be fantastic. And I forget, they want three or four million dollars for that, for that building, something like that. And, and all the time I'm thinking, man, God, that would be so cool. We had that building and we could do this and we could do that and we could do this kind of thing. And, and listen, can I tell you what my plan would be? How we'd get that building? I was thinking about this. This would be my plan. I'm driving down the road on a Saturday uh, evening. It's, uh, it's dark by now. It's, it's grown dark. Uh, I'm, I'm headed home and along the way I have a flat tire. <sighs> kind of bummed out about the flat tire. But what are you going to do? It's a flat tire. I, I try and keep going. Maybe I can get to the next exit or something and find uh, somebody can actually change a tire or, or something. And, and uh, so I'm going, but, but I, it comes a point where I know I'm just not going to make this thing. And I've got I've to pull over on the shoulder of the road. And there's kind of a, a steep uh, downgrade there. The passenger side front tire is flat. And I, and I get out and I try and find a manual on how to change a tire. And, and I get the stuff out and and, and I, start, I start taking the lug nuts off, and it's dark, and, you know, it's, it's cold. Let's make it cold. It's my, it's my plan. Let's make it cold. And so I, so, and I'm trying to get those lug nuts off, and, I, and I'm twisting. I get this one lug nut off, and, and the lug nut falls, and it kind of rolls down the hill in, in somewhere into the grass, and it's dark. So now I'm really aggravated. Cindy, would you find that lug nut down there? No. That's a, <laughs> Would you get out into the cold and find that? It's somewhere down there. You get, no. So I, what I do, I get down and I start searching. I'm feeling in the grass. Where's where, this lug nut? Somewhere. And as I'm feeling around, I, I touch something and, and it feels like a piece of paper or something, but, I, but I'm not sure and I, and I, I can't see it. it it's, it's dark and I, and I start to discard it. But something tells me, hold on to that piece of paper. So I stick it in my pocket and I, I search all around some more and I find the lug nut, ah! And I come back in and I put the, the, the tire on I, and I get going and I get it all changed and whew, jump back in the car because it's cold, remember? And I get it all changed and, and I'm ready to go. And I jump back in the car and I'm in the car and I turn on the light and I look. I've got to get out of my pocket. Get out of my pocket, this piece of paper that I found in the dark, couldn't tell what it was and look at it and it's a lottery ticket. Now I'm a preacher, can't buy a lottery ticket, right? I, I had to find it on the side of the road. It's my plan. So... You know, so you know, I I stick in my pocket, going home, go home. You know, it's Saturday night. Got to get ready to preach tomorrow. Sunday's coming, so I, you know, I spend time in prayer and I study God's word and everything. Go to bed late at night, and I, and I get in bed and as I lay down, I, I'm about to go to sleep, and I've got the TV on for just a few minutes as I begin to doze off, and and uh, the, all of a sudden the lottery numbers come on for for the thing. Uh, 16, 22, 37, uh, 42, and the Powerball number is 11. Uh, it's my plan. 11. And, and something, something about those numbers seems seem strangely uh, familiar. I, I don't know what it is, and, I, and I'm not sure, and I'm just dozing off asleep, and then all of a sudden, I found a lottery ticket. I didn't buy it. I found a lottery ticket. So I jump out of bed and I, and I, and I scramble through my drawers and, and, I, and I find that number and, and I look back on the screen. It's 18 and 22 and 36 and 40. Powerball number 11. I just won $132 million. Keep in mind, I didn't buy the lottery ticket. 
This has to be the providence of God that has directed me to this place, that that particular place I stopped and, and, that, and I reached and I lost it. And I find $132 million. Well, now, goodness gracious, I can tithe and just buy that building, right? And, okay, sure, I'll have a few nice things myself. But uh, now I can buy that building. And we can upfit it and, and we just move in. And, and we won't have to set up every week. We won't have to tear down every week. And we won't have to you know, do all that stuff and rent this facility anymore and, and all that kind of stuff. We, we could just, that's my plan. Now, you know what the amazing thing is about God? That kind of stuff could happen. There, somebody could have walked into the service today for the very first time. Could hear me talking about three, four, eight, and Somebody could have walked into the service today and, 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 and before they go out the door today, they're going to write a check for, for $4 million. Um, Cross Culture Church, P.O. Box 90753. <laughs> Just drop it in right back there. And you, you, you know what? You hear about that. Some, sometimes you'll hear some crazy story. I hear stuff about this church did this and all, so whatever. It's just some unbelievable thing. What if God's plan is that we stay here and we struggle and we set up and we get burnt out and we tear down and we get burnt out? And we reach out, and we invite, and we share, and we bring, and we give. And more people come, and more people give their life to Jesus Christ. And more people are beating in the air of stewardship, and, and more this, and more that. And, and through the process, a, a, a small little group of people that the world takes very little notice of are suddenly able to, to do things that most people would have never even dreamt of doing. As they see God moving and working. Maybe God's plan is different from my plan. I can promise you it's better. I can promise you in the end, it's better. Ahab made his plans, but he found out the hard way that when you leave God out of your plans, things are not going to go according to plan. The truth is, God is on his throne. We can trust him, no matter what may come into our lives. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us when we trust in Him. There's a new Crosswalk lesson each week available at crosswalkonline.org and at crossculturelife.org. Visit us online and find out how you can join one of our life groups and participate in the small group study of The Truth Project. And join us next week as Pastor Clay continues this timely and life-changing series. Cross Culture Church has a new home in Raleigh. We invite you to join us for our weekly cross-culture worship with upbeat, Christ-centered music and timely, encouraging biblical messages celebrating the goodness of our God and what it means to be in a relationship with Him. Cross Culture Church meets Sunday mornings at 1030 in the auditorium at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture, you'll find a community of believers with the desire to be used by God to show that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where you'll find what you're looking for. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.